Hi, this is Logan Thomas. I'm the writer and director of the motion picture, There's No Such Thing as Vampires. You're listening to the HP Lovecast Podcast. Hello, and welcome to HP Lovecast Presents Transmissions, where we collect brief interviews by creators with new or upcoming projects. We'll open with a guest reading an excerpt from their project, and then follow up with an interview proper. Transmissions posts on the last day of each month. I'm Nicholas Dyack, pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, Industrial Music, Horror Studies, and I'm the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. And I am Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with special emphasis on horror, fantasy, and spy genres. Nicholas and I co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarlane. As we finish up the month focused on Lovecraftian-inspired music, we welcome Thomas Blakely and Matt Toronto to discuss the musical A Dream at the End of Time, and Dorian Williamson and Jim Field, who comprised the Canadian dark ambient group Northumbria. A special thank you to Dorian and Jim for giving us permission to share segments from their Black Sea of Trees single for this episode. A Dream at the End of Time is a musical which is an adaptation of Lovecraft's story the Quest of Iranon, written by Thomas Blakely, composed by Duncan C.B. Smith, and directed by Matt Toronto. For this transmission, we interviewed Thomas and Matt about A Dream at the End of Time, which will be performed at the Hollywood French Festival. Welcome, Thomas and Matt. All right, we are joined by Thomas Blakely this evening. Thomas, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? Oh, doing pretty good. It's the start of a new week, but we're excited to talk to you. You are our first, uh, I don't know what the correct term is, playwright of a musical? Uh, uh, it would be book writer and lyricist. We'll go with book writer and lyricist. I like it. But why don't you tell You're us- our first. Yeah. <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Uh, you know, whatever you feel comfortable with background, what brought you to this project? Sure thing. Um, so uh, I'm a I'm primarily a book writer and lyricist of musical theater. I've I started in New York. I had some performances at uh, Playwrights Horizons and Theater for the New City before moving out to LA to do some film work. And I've had some stuff at uh, the Broadwater Theater in Hollywood. And uh, currently, I have two shows about to premiere in the Hollywood Fringe Festival: uh, Washington Square, a chamber opera adaptation of the novel of the same name by Henry James, and A Dream at the End of Time, which is why we're here, uh, a, a musical adaptation of The Quest of Iranon by H.P. Lovecraft. Nice segue right into, can you tell us a little bit about the musical? Sure thing. Uh, so it's it's an adaptation of The Quest of Iranon by H.P. Lovecraft about a uh, an immortal bard on a quest for a mythical kingdom of art and music. And he brings a naive youth on this quest with him, but as they get closer to their destination, it becomes clear that the bard isn't who he appears to be. Mm. I like that. So, so this is based off the qu- the quest of Irnon. So, 
why why that particular Lovecraft story to adapt? What attracted you to it? I would say there are a lot of really relevant themes going on in the story that we tried to pull out about the importance of art and music uh, in bringing meaning to life and the importance of authentic relationships. Like it's one of the few Lovecraft stories that has like really strong relationships in it. And we tried to like really build that out in our adaptation. And it's also as a musical, it's a story that's infused with music. It has a singing bard all throughout the story. So it just sung. And it also has a really good twist at the end that is like dramatically enticing. You know, we just got done for our normal episode for this month because we're doing Maine Music Month and we did a, uh, a revisitization, that's not a real word, but we're going to go with it, of uh, the music of Eric Zahn and it's called The Silence of Erica Zahn. And it was an interesting 1960s psychedelic take on the music of Eric Zahn. But, you know, I've always thought, you know, Lovecraft and music kind of, they do go together. You got the pipings for Azathoth and that story. So it's so nice that, you know, more of that's uh, coming to the fold that you're bringing out as well with this one. Thomas, can you talk about whether there were, you experienced any challenges with adapting to a musical or did it just kind of seem to fit and everything clicked into p- place for you? The nice thing about Lovecraft is that he has some really rich ideas and the structure of the piece works so well in adaptation. It has a very clear beginning, middle and end and we just had a lot of what we had to expand in the story to build out the characters and their relationships. So like some of the choices that we made in the adaptation, like Lovecraft isn't particularly good with female representation. Uh, So one of the choices that we made was we took this like very vague king character in the original short story and like flipped the gender, made them into a queen and then like gave them a big solo near the end of the show as a way of like, like trying to push for more like strong female characters. Well, aside from that, what other surprises comes from, you know, kind of, uh, I don't want to say subverting it, but, you know, twisting around a bit and remixing Lovecraft to the musical, uh, any other kind of surprise, like, wow, that that's really well. That does something that wasn't done before in a Lovecraftian story. I don't want to give too much away uh, because it would it would spoil some of the twist. But like, like part of what we're trying to do is is make a bit of a, a more I don't want to say contemporary spin on the story, but something that will like comment on like this metatextual element to to Lovecraft's like more problematic aspects, like his general homophobia so we like put a bit of a queer spin on the relationship between the two main characters. Thomas would you like to adapt another uh, Lovecraft story and if so which one would you tackle? And how? Uh, Yes and would it be a musical or you know maybe a different different kind of take? I don't know whether it would be a musical or not Um, there have been a few Lovecraft stories like in pitching just this general idea to my collaborator, um, we, we ran a lot of different different ideas uh, past one another to try and pick like what we thought was a good decision for us. Um, one of the other stories that I really liked was uh, the thing on the doorstep and uh, flipping the, the perspective to put it from Asenath's perspective and make her the protagonist. That was another story that like I really want to try and revisit at some point. 
Um, but another thing that we want to do is because currently A Dream at the End of Time is a 40 minute musical. Um, and for the next iteration, we want to expand it into a full length and we want to incorporate more stories from Lovecraft's dream cycle into that adaptation um, to kind of build it out more, build the world out more. Uh, and we were actually thinking about possibly pulling from the cats of Ulthar and possibly uh, the dream quest of Unknown Kadath, like different, different dream cycle stories as a way of like building out the universe. And those would work well together too. There's a bit more whimsy in the, the dreamland stories than mm -hmm. with Cthulhu mythos stories, that's for sure. I, I should ask, do you have a personal preference? Cthulhu mythos, Arkham, Dark and Dreary, or a little bit of sword and sorcery dreamlands that you kind of fall into? I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say I have a preference. I would just say they're, they're both very different types of stories. They're trying to accomplish different things. Um, my favorite Lovecraft story is probably The Shadow Over Innsmouth, but <laughs> that's like one of the most famous ones. Um, and I just, I find his more obscure ones so enticing because I think every story has something like ideas that are so rich, but, but it's interesting which ones become famous and which ones don't quite get the attention that they should. And the dream cycle stories are like, really gorgeous stories that deserve more attention than they have right now. We would agree with that. We, we very much like the dreamland stories, but we don't seem to get a chance to talk about them all that much. What, what we find is successor authors that do their own dreamland stories, they do some neat stuff. Mm -hmm. Totally, yeah. yeah. Well, actually we should ask before we wrap up and talk about your future projects that you'd like to realize, since you know you said Shadow Over Innsmouth was your favorite, what, what kind of brought you to Lovecraft in the first place, if we may ask? I I loved I loved Lovecraft uh, throughout high school um, and like loved pulp fiction in general. And then like the older that I got, the more I like kind of moved away from his stuff and like got more into classical literature and then like then I circled back to his stuff when I was older with like a new kind of appreciation for it. And also just an understanding of like, like this is public domain storytelling that has like a built-in following and stuff that I am passionate about. And it's a good kind of material to, to expand into, into something that both has themes that I am passionate about, um, like so much about Iranon especially, like growing up queer in the South, leaving my home to move to New York and then California. Um, like that's so much of what the story is about. It's about a bard who loves art moving into this oppressive community and showing the importance of art and music to someone who has never experienced that before and like inspiring them to go out and, and find what brings them fulfillment. And I think that's a story that you don't hear about with Lovecraft that often, but something that's so important to tell. That definitely, like you said, a lot of this stuff, there's good ideas out there. Some of them don't quite get picked up by the general audience, but they're all great uh, starting points and foundations for successor work that can, mm -hmm. you know, takes, you know, stuff that Lovecraft never intended or, you know, like there's always this nefarious side that people say, you know what, I don't have to get those elements. I can subvert it to something more positive. So it's always a cool thing. That's what we like to talk about with our interviewers that uh, 
you know, do all the derivative work of Lovecraft is what they do new. That's, mm -hmm. you know. Because it really is a rich sandbox in which to play in and really create new ideas and expand on those and just explore different ways of playing in that box. Lovecraft, more like Minecraft. Okay, that was terrible. <laughs> that was bad. That was bad. So uh, as we wrap up, what projects do you have on the horizon that our listeners should be uh, watching for? Uh, other than my other friend's show, uh, Washington Square Chamber Opera, um, Duncan, who's the composer of, of A Dream at the End of Time, uh, and I are also collaborating on an animated musical pilot um, that we're going to be writing and hopefully workshopping next year. Um, so that's cool. And for folks that do want to see uh, your production during the Hollywood uh, Fringe Festival, that's well, all through June, right? So what, what's the best way folks can learn about it? The show times, look it up, get the tickets and stuff. Uh, so the performances are June 4th, 19th and 25th. Uh, they can buy tickets directly through the Fringe site, um, or there will also be a streamed performance on the 26th that they can purchase through Eventbrite, uh, and that will remain up after the 26th indefinitely, as long as they have a link to it. Oh, um, oh that's, that's great. I, I'm glad that there's a, yeah, I know there's that part of theater where it's a one-time thing, you miss it, you missed out, but oh, it's so cool that it's going to be uh, preserved. That's awesome. We really want to increase the accessibility to this, to this cool. stuff. That's wonderful. Well, Thomas, uh, uh, thank you so much for coming on and being our first <laughs> with a Lovecraft musical. <laughs> and now that we know that it's going to be preserved and streamed, we can do because that's in, even though we're in Phoenix, we've been to the Hollywood Fringe Festival for it. And it's fun to support the, the mm -hmm. arts and check out the stuff there. And we, you know, Lovecraft musical, we got to check it out now. Now we can, and we hope our listeners will too. So yeah. thank you so much for coming on, sir. All right. And we are also joined with Matt Toronto, the director of A Dream at the End of Time. So welcome, Matt. We hope you're doing well. Doing great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so we got to ask, what brought you to this project? What brought you to direct a Lovecraft musical? I've always been a, a, a bit of a fan of Lovecraft. Not, not I wouldn't say I'm, a, you know, like, you know, I'm a connoisseur, but like I've always been interested in his work and I've read a few of his stories and been like, wow, you know, really interesting stuff. Um, but uh, I just happened to be collaborating with a company called New Musicals Incorporated on a couple of things. And they also helped develop um, A Dream at the End of Time with uh, Thomas and Duncan, the writers. And I knew them through a couple of different, uh, you know, I do a lot of musical theater. Um, I, I taught musical theater at Penn State for years. Um, and uh, so they were like, hey, we're looking for some directors for um, some musicals that were workshopping and one of them was a dream at the end of time and I was like that really sounds fascinating to me um and I got a chance to to read it and listen to some of their their um demo recordings and I was like the score is beautiful the story is really um just magical and it's not the typical love lovecraft sort of horror sci-fi kind of feel and it, it there's something really beautiful about it and it celebrates art and music and so it really felt like it was a great choice to musicalize it and turn it into a story that's that's musicalized. And um, so I just fell in love with it as soon as I heard it. And I said, yes, I would love to direct it. It was meant to be directed in Fringe Festival in 2020. But of course, uh, the pandemic hit and everything fell apart. So we did a virtual uh, 
recording. We did a virtual reading of it. And then now we're finally here and we get to mount it on stage at the French. So we're really excited about that. Oh, that is really exciting. And Matt, since we're not that familiar with uh, with regards to theater and particularly directing musicals, did you encounter any challenges with uh, directing? Or surprises? Or did you have any surprises while you were directing? This story is really interesting because it's a journey. It's traveling, right? So uh, the main character, Iranon, begins the story in this city called Teloth and they're just dedicated to work and he finds the young uh young man who's interested in music and this is Iranon is this singer this bard this traveling bard and so we have to travel them from Teloth to a couple of other city well one other city and through you know 10 years worth of time and so you have to find a way to physicalize this long this 10 year long journey on a stage that's only 23 by 16 feet, you know, square. And so um, there's a lot of imagination that has to go into it. So one of the challenges was to kind of find a way to physicalize that travel and also help convey the passage of time while the characters are also developing in terms of their relationship and in terms of their, uh, their own emotional sort of place in the story. And as you can see in the back here, some of the the cast are gathering. We're about to have a rehearsal in a, in a little bit. Uh, no, well, we're about to wrap up. Uh, we know that y'all have that rehearsal coming up. So we should ask, uh, aside from uh, Dream at Dinner Time, you yourself, what other projects that you have in the future coming out that you'd like to, uh, you know, promote or uh, bring attention to? Uh, yeah, I'm, I, I'm in post-production for a movie called uh, House of Lies, which, um, which is a feature that I directed in uh, December of last year, and that will be coming out. Uh, we hope, probably in the, probably not for another year, but uh, on on Lifetime. Uh, and um, trying to think what else I need to <laughs> plug or promote. But yeah, and then I have some other projects that I have a a couple of features that I that are in development that we're trying to get off the ground um, in terms of you know ones that I'm that I've written that I also hope to direct so I, I do a lot of writing and directing and so there's those are all sort of in gestation we're raising money for some of them and others we're trying looking for partners and everything but uh, yeah a lot a lot cooking well very cool we'll definitely have to keep an eye out we hope that this interview helps uh, shed a bit more light on your work and also with Thomas's work in that mm -hmm that uh, y'all's musical is super well-received at the Hollywood French Festival. Great, thank you so much. Glad, glad I could uh, meet you both. Northumbria is a Canadian dark ambient group comprised of Dorian Williamson and Jim Field. Aside from being a stalwart act on the legendary Cryo Chamber label, Northumbria has also contributed to the label's Lovecraft collaboration albums since Nilathrotep in 2016. On this transmission, we talk with Dorian and Jim about Northumbria, their music, collaborations, and their love for H.P. Lovecraft. Welcome, Dorian and Jim. We are joined tonight with Dorian and Jim from Northumbria. Gentlemen, it is awesome to see y'all. How you doing? Excellent. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. Great to, great to be with you tonight. Really appreciate it. Well, y'all are our first uh, musicians proper on the show, and y'all do kind of a very niche genre of, 
I'll say underground music. I was going to say extreme music, but um, but with Northumbria. So can you describe what is Northumbria, the type of music you do, and why you do it? Well, gosh, where do I start? <laughs> <laughs> I always struggle with the idea of specifically pigeonholing any sort of music uh, in general. And I, I think particularly for what we create particularly because what we do is just something that we do. Uh, we're not self-consciously trying to create something specific. Uh, we create all of our music in the moment. We, we improvise freely and we record whatever it is that we do. And Dorian and I have this really fantastic conversation that's been lasting for, gosh, how long now? 10 years? Yeah, at least yeah. 10 years. Yeah. I don't know, long enough oh. that I don't remember. <laughs> 10, 10 years in Northumbria, longer. Yeah. And then we, we used to uh, play in a post-rock band together as well by the name of Holocene. That was arguably sort of the other end of the spectrum in terms of the approach. It was, it was very orchestrated and arranged and mm -hmm. deliberate. Whereas uh, Northumbria is a very sort of free form, free flowing. And as I say, much like a conversation. Mm -hmm. So as to say, what kind of music is it or why do we do it? I would describe it as ambient. I would say that it's sort of very kind of cinematic. It's sort of a storytelling kind of music. So cinematic from that point of view. And it's just a free expression of, of what we do and what we're feeling in any particular moment. There's also kind of a reaction, maybe uh, unconscious reaction against our past musical um, projects where everything was very, very arranged and planned and and, uh, and and deliberate deliberate you know yeah, yeah. and in Northumbria we thought like what, what would happen if we kind of got together with sort of the sort of tonal options that we have and just did something completely totally open and free and improvised yeah where there was where where it was 100% based on what happened spontaneously in the moment and capturing those moments live as a like a complete total uh, you know, like 180 direction from our, our past musical projects, which were very, very sort of strict and rigid and composed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would say that's sort of like the genesis of the band. Yeah, and absolutely. Keeping, and keeping, keeping it kind of like raw and, and, and uh, we don't, we don't, we tend to not manipulate anything in post-production. What you hear on, our, on, on the records are sort of very much like document, documents of that moment with very little, post-production done after the fact. Yeah, yeah, it's, we're, we're just uh, freely expressing whatever it is that's happening in the moment. Um, I mean, I come from a, a fairly expansive background in terms of uh, music that I've studied and played. Um, jazz being one of them, uh, so freely improvisational and sort of expressing as you hear, but also, I mean, rock and, metal and experimental and I mean Dorian falls into these categories as well uh, but as I say I, I mean I'm, I'm always a little kind of adverse to the idea of trying to specifically say well it's this or it's that mm. um, and it helps I, find the records in the record store of where to look well sure I mean am I going in like you know the metal department or I'm heading over to the hip-hop department I mean yeah for sure obviously <laughs> Uh, and, and I think if we wanted to do such a thing, I would describe it as dark ambient. And I think this is why a cryo chamber has been such a, I don't know, a wonderful community that we found. And 
And Simon Heath has created this, this community of like-minded artists that uh, have a, a very wide range of expression of the kind of music they create, that there's an underlying element of um, introspective and free-flowing, um, not trying to work into any sort of specific genre, just creating what they feel as artists sound beautiful. And, uh, and I know for me, and I, I think I speak for Dorian as well when I say this, that we've really found a home there. We've really found uh, artists that have a similar voice and a similar attitude. And, and Simon has done an incredible job of curating that. So, uh, so it's, it's been great. We, we've been feeling really good about that. So, so I think dark ambient is, is sort of the tagline for cryo chamber. And, and I feel good with that. I think in spite of what I'm saying about, well, I don't want to put a tag on it. I, I think if there was a tag that was good, that, that's a good one. De definitely introspective music, uh, for sure. I think of some of the best horror films out there that have that ambient, not quite John Carpenter's synth, but that more, like, if you've ever seen the movie The Void, it's got, like, I think Lustmord's part of it. It's even more chilling because it's, you know, it's it's thoughtful, but also haunting at the same time because of those aspects. Well, haunting is a really good word. I like that word. And, uh, and I, I'm actually, as, as you can tell, we, before we started our interview, we were discussing the idea of Silent Hill, the video game and that franchise and, uh, and the composer with the, that creates the music to that particular series. Um, and, and I found that, uh, as I was playing those games, I found the music was particularly perfect for that sort of uh, horrific, surreal, psychological horror thing. And, and I really resonate with those ideas. Um, I, I would say that Northumbria doesn't necessarily go there with the really scary aspect of things. I, I, I think of Northumbria as being more sort of meditative and uh scary moments so oh yeah we, we've definitely brought the scary <laughs> there have been times <laughs> a couple of scary tracks through the catalog you know sometimes deliberately sometimes inadvertently <laughs> just to uh yeah there, there are some moments where we yeah but it, i think meditative meditative is a very that's a very central word to what we do i think because mm -hmm. when jim and i get together what we do is kind of in a sense is a type of meditation. Like we, mm -hmm. we don't necessarily go into a meditative state, but the actual, the act of creation, at least in the way we've been sort of, sort of modus operandi that we've established is kind of like a dual meditation. Yeah. We create a space that is sacred in the sense where we know we're going to kind of birth something. Mm -hmm possibly Lovecraftian deity. <laughs> not, not always. Could be cosmic hopefully, horror, could be beautiful. <laughs> could be something you want to like deep breathe to, could be something yeah. you want to run streaming from. Yeah. But there's a, definitely that sense of like, there's creating a sacred space and a meditative space and then letting the music kind of like guide us, you know? Yeah, flow through that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and I mean, sometimes the world is a, frighteningly horrifying place. I mean, sadly, recently, particularly, mm. with the prevalence of war and the uh, financial difficulties that a lot of people are experiencing in the post-COVID world, as well as mourning the loss of people that have died. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I mean, we were discussing the, the loss of one of the artists on the cryo-chambered label uh, as a direct result of COVID. Um, Cesar from uh, Mount Shrine, uh, brilliant artist and- Very brilliant. Oh, and, and wonderful person, a very approachable and good guy. And uh, yeah, we, we found out that he had died at the age of 25, uh, leaving a family behind uh, due to COVID. And so, yeah, so there, there are aspects of darkness uh, that can be expressed through our music, and it certainly has been. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and we're not afraid to go there, so to speak, you know, because, I mean, it's just part of being alive. And we like dark art, too. I mean, I think well, certainly. Yeah, it's a good, it's a very healthy way to kind of communicate negative emotions, right? Absolutely. You know, I I mean, I was reading an an article the other day talking about how uh, metal fans are among some of the most uh, relaxed, nice people you'll ever meet, because the music is so incredibly cathartic. (laughs) And uh, the release of what could be argued as negative energies uh, through the music. And, and I think there's an element of, of that for me as well. And I think for Dorian as well, yeah. for what we create when, when we go in the more sort of darker, intense places. Well, a sense of comfort in it as well, I would imagine. Yes, yeah. I agree completely. There is, there is an enormous amount of comfort mm-hmm. because it, it can be a safe way of expressing things that perhaps you don't have another way of expressing mm-hmm. or, or there isn't a direct channel to those places and feelings. So, uh, so music, I think, can be really good that way, very positive in its negativity. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask uh, kind of what got you all into this? I mean, uh, is it from, uh, we talked a little bit about Silent Hill, but you've also described your music as cinematic. I mean, are you coming from a background of, uh, you know, uh, not just well-read uh, individuals or well-cinematic individuals or even well-gaming individuals? I mean, uh, what kind of, brought this together and, and also what can you accomplish with this genre that you can't say in you know death metal or power noise or whatever yeah I feel like <clears throat> it's almost like you know the the space that exists between consciousness and unconsciousness before you sleep I feel like like that sort of amorphous kind of like ineffable space is very similar to the same kind of space that the music we create, whether it's dark ambient or, you know, like drone kind of exists to it, exists within, within that realm. It's like, it's, it's hard to like put into words what it is because it's a sort of like amorphous abstract thing that is, is kind of like hard to describe using language, but also extremely familiar and natural and it, it, it sort of, it, it exists in nature in a sense, you know, like the drone, the drone really feel, it resonates with you in a way that feels kind of natural. That's probably why it's used in so much, so many like religious contexts. Yeah, resonance is it, a good word. Re- resonance, <laughs> it, it resonates with you, mm-hmm. but also like the, the, like the music we make, I feel like when it's at its best and this music, when it's at its best is very akin to that kind of like, not conscious, not unconscious, interzone space. Almost a psychedelic consciousness. Almost, almost a psychedelic mm-hmm. consciousness, yeah. like a, like a, like a, the twilight before sleep kind of, you yeah. know? So like channeling kind of almost sort of like a meta consciousness, like, like consciousness, consciousness of consciousness. <laughs> it exists and we all feel like 
connected to it, yeah. but we only realize that when we experience it. You know what I mean? Well, absolutely. And 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 I think that um, the way that we go into it is that we don't have any preconceived notions or any sort of uh, pretensions as to what we're trying to create. It's it's just a matter of hey, you know, let's let's see what happens. Uh, let's start creating. And, you know, I'll, I'll create a loop and then Dorian does a drone and then we start improvising over top of that. And like I said, I like to use the word conversation because that's essentially what it is. It's like I suggest a thing and then Dorian suggests a thing and then I react to that thing and then he reacts to that <laughs> thing and, you know, on and on and on. <laughs> and then when it works, which, you know, fortunately is fairly frequently, <laughs> um, it turns into something greater than. And, uh, and that's why I was saying it's sort of like a meta consciousness. It's sort of like a thing that exists outside of whatever it is that we're creating. Mm. Um, now, why do we do this and where did it come from? Well, for me, it's, it's just a free expression. Um, I, I think that so much of music these days, as we currently understand it from a, a perhaps commercial standpoint, is that it's a product that's sort of creating an environment to express a certain feeling. You know, I want to go out and have fun or I want to feel energetic or I want to feel angry or I want to release some energy. Or, and these are all really good things. These, these, these are really great purposes that music can offer. But we've done things like that in the past. And I don't want to say that we've been there, done that, because music <laughs> is never ending. <laughs> but... I feel as though I've satisfied my desire to create that kind of music, at least for the time being anyways. Mm, yeah. And when we first started working together, it was sort of a conscious rebellion against the idea of the strictures of, you know, verse, chorus, bridge, outro, thank you, good night, <laughs> or some sort of preconceived notion of what a song should sound like. Yeah. And and I think that's what's drawn both of us to the idea of um, what's considered experimental music, something that goes beyond the understanding of what most people think of as pop music. So when I try to describe this music to people that maybe haven't listened to that kind of stuff or haven't embraced those ideas or it just sounds like flat out weirdo music. <laughs> um I just kind of say, well, you know what? Have a listen to it. It's it's kind of like soundtrack music, and it kind of tells a story, and uh, you know, it, it it tries to evoke some kind of feelings. So I think that's really the idea. For uh, folks that are interested in Northumbria, uh, what release would you recommend as an entry point to your project, and why? I think you probably like something that encapsulates the essence of the band was the song and the video for uh, Black Sea of Trees, which was a song from our first album that, um, that we recorded live uh, in, in, in a, actually in a uh, Victorian church. Um, <clears throat> and it was a, a 13 minute long improvised uh, drone metal piece that was uh, inspired by the suicide forest in Japan that was then um, brilliantly adapted to a short film by our friend Mark Ferrand, who created a, a uh, we spent 26 nights in the forest shooting a time-lapse 
uh, video slash short film based on the song to try to encapsulate the uh, sort of the, 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 the feeling and the sort of parapsychological dread that would have been present in uh, the, the suicide forest of Japan. I think feel like that would be a good starting point for us because it's uh, it's improv it's improvised, but it also has the tone and the feel and the sort of the overall sort of dynamic range arc that a lot of our music has. Yeah, the intensity that a lot of the music has, mm -hmm. without question. It's full on, but it also has very ambient moments. So yeah. I would say a good a good place to start with our band, which is one of the first things we actually recorded, ironically, is Black Sea of Trees which is sort of the nickname for the, the suicide forest of Japan, which is like a lot of our music is um, inspired or sort of motivate, motivated by, a, by places and by sort of human interaction at a place in a time. And, and that was sort of the beginning of that kind of like uh, exploration with the band sonically what it would, translate like to be in that place at that time yeah it's invoking it mm -hmm. yeah it's Absolutely. definitely like an indication mm -hmm. yeah no, without any question. I would start i would start there yeah oh that's very interesting i'm i'm familiar with that forest in japan um and i've mm -hmm. seen some different programs it's very very interesting place so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well i think before we actually segue into the lovecraft music stuff she just probably at this point blank ask, what got y'all into Lovecraft in the first place? <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> we got a few hours right now. <laughs> well, okay. Um, I, I'm 54, so I'm an old guy. You do not look 54 at all. Well, thank you very kindly. I do appreciate that. Uh, when I was a kid, <laughs> back when dinosaurs walked the earth, um, this was the pre-internet, pre-computer age. Well, I wouldn't say pre-computer, but certainly pre-internet. And so uh, any form of uh, entertainment that uh, some youthful fellows such as me would be drawn to uh, were books. And... Uh, and I, at about the tender age of nine or 10, got into Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. <laughs> now, for me, at that point in time, that was the mid 70s. This is when Dungeons and Dragons was not even advanced Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> it was simply Dungeons and Dragons. And uh, through a series of very wonderfully fateful events, I connected with that whole world. And um, I was already drawn to fantasy and science fiction and horror, even as a kid. So I think there was an element of faithfulness involved. Uh, I also read comics uh, and uh, read science fiction. And I, I read Dune when I was 12, <laughs> Foundation series and all. So, you know, so for me, I, I've always been a book oriented sort of person. But I would say Dungeons and Dragons was the entry drug <laughs> or the gateway drug, uh, simply because uh, one of the books that you have to have as part of your library if you're going to be a halfway decent dungeon master was the Monster Manual and the Fiend Folio. And uh, back in those days, before there were copyright issues or even such a concept, <laughs> 
uh, Gary Gygax was pretty free about his appropriating of various different deities and monsters and, and traditions and so forth. So the original books of those that encapsulated all the monsters that you would incorporate into your games if you were the dungeon master uh, included the Lovecraft pantheon. And uh, being, you know, the inquisitive young chap I was, I went, wow, this is cool. <laughs> and so I, I was like you know, looking at Cthulhu, obviously, and you know, Sothoth and Shibnigroth and all the rest. And, and you know, and, and I was like, okay, this is kind of neat. So, so I went to my local library back when such a thing was still a thing and started pulling out all the books and going, hey, this is cool. And uh, so, yeah, so it kind of just went from there. And um, there was a science fiction bookshop in Toronto, because that's where we're from. Um, well, I am. Um, we're, we're from the Ontario, Canada. And uh, I grew up in the Toronto area. And there was a bookshop called Baca that was really fantastic, Baca Science Fiction Bookshop. Um, and they had a whole area dedicated to Lovecraft's mm. writing. And all the books I showed you, actually, it would, yeah, sorry, the audience, I, I showed a whole series of books that I, I still treasure to this day mm. from my youth. And I was like, wow, this is really, really cool. And, and the people that ran that shop, like any good bookshop, they, they saw like this kid walking in with wide eyes going, wow, okay, I want to get all this Lovecraft stuff. So they pointed me in the right direction. They said, well, you want to read Color Out of Space and Call of Cthulhu and Whisper in Darkness and, you know, Dream Quest of Unknown Cadeth and, you know, obviously at the Mountains of Madness and so forth and on and on and on. And for me, I think what really hooked me was that, Lovecraft was an incredibly amazing writer. Uh, arguably, the prose that he used is outdated sounding now. Yeah. Um, but to me, that was the allure. The fact that he used words like cyclopean <laughs> and like the, these incredibly heavy, verbose descriptions of his visions of cosmic horror oh, yeah. to me was just like, wow, what is this? <laughs> so as, as I would be reading one of these stories, I'd have the thesaurus sitting beside me and I'd be looking up these words and going, what, what is this guy going on about? And, and I just, I found that the way he wrote as much as what he wrote about really drew me in and really made me go, wow, this, this is really something exceptional. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, so it, so it opened me up to that whole world of, uh, of, of horror writing, cosmic horror particularly. But you know, then I got into like King and Yellow and, and all that whole world. And, and then, you know, obviously like, you know, moving on into like, you know, all, all the other horror writers of, of a comparable ilk. And, and, uh, and, and for me, it was just this sort of like secret world because a lot of people my age had never even heard of these things. And D&D &D already had this like 
kind of connotation of like ooh, weirdo kids you know <laughs> oh my god satanism oh whatever and, and you know obviously it was just kids having fun but but back in the day it was it was used as an excuse to treat young people as if they had some weird subversive thing going on <laughs> and so for me it was like it, it was the entry point to a greater world of great writing and, and fantasy and horror and and uh yeah yeah that, that that's where it started for me well jim, jim uh real quick before we go to dorian i should ask since kid of the 70s reading lots of uh sword and sorcery and playing D D and also getting a lovecraft were you a big fan of lynn carter at all mm -hmm. awesome of course oh yeah no absolutely i well fantasy stuff and swords and sorcery that's like a whole other world right <laughs> but yeah yeah absolutely and and uh, all the conan stories obviously i mean that was a whole thing and and the mars books like you know um and uh no, absolutely. Um, Heinlein and and uh, and like I say, Foundation, Asimov, and all of these kinds of books. And uh, for for me, it's like I don't know. I, I guess I've always been a real avid reader, and and I, I I just love books because I think the real magic of a book is that it truly puts you into the mind of the writer. And you're hearing the story directly from them across the ages. Mm -hmm. And there's no filtering. Mm -hmm. There's no um, assumptions made. It's like you're just dropped right into whatever it is they're trying to communicate to you. And I think that's an incredibly beautiful thing that we've kind of lost in this current digital age of vast quantities of of whatever it is that you want at the push of a button. <laughs> I mean, yes, that's beautiful. And I love the whole digital village, Marshall McLuhan thing. Yes, absolutely, I'm down with that. But it creates this sort of surfing on the surface. It, it doesn't encourage the deep dive that a book does. It, it doesn't encourage you to invest the energy and the interest and the time to really go there. And, you know, and maybe encounter ideas or, like I said, in my case, words with the thesaurus and because, because, you know, Lovecraft was a very kind of intellectual writer and he used a lot of the vernacular of his day that today sounds anachronistic. It's like he uses these crazy words that you're just like, what the hell is this guy going on about? And, and I, I really, I loved that because again, it sort of felt like it brought you into this like secret society kind of like, oh, hey, well, you know that, oh, that's cool, you know? So to me, that's what I think is amazing about all of these sorts of books and ideas, for sure. And you, Dorian, um any entry point for you to Lovecraft or what kind of got you into him or even a passing interest in him? My first experience with H.P. Lovecraft, I grew up in a very, very small town with an amazing bookstore. And <laughs> I remember at a very young age, maybe 11 or 12, walking into uh, the bookstore and seeing, I went to the horror section because I, I had read a few kind of like mainstream Stephen, like Stephen King Dean Coots kind of horror horror novels. So I was like, I would gravitate Big towards <laughs> yeah, I would gravitate towards the horror section. And a new release came out, which was actually like an old, like a reissue 
of H.P. Lovecraft's uh, Tales of Macabre. And I was drawn to the cover and it looked like slick and weird. And I bought it thinking that it would be, it was weird for me to buy actually at the time because it was a collection of short stories. And I wasn't really hip to short stories at the time, but I bought this book based on the, the coolness of the presentation and the cover and everything. Brought it home, not really realizing that it was like insanity written in the written in the 20s and 30s and opened the page to the Dunwich Horror. The first short, uh, short story I read was the Dunwich Horror. And I, could, I couldn't believe what I was reading because it was like, I was already watching films like by David Cronenberg and I was very into visceral kind of experiences. And, and to me, like reading the Dunwich Horror, it was, it was, it was like, prose written with like a dripping gooey visceral reality that was so completely <laughs> expressive and 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 emotive that it drew me in like I'd never read any prose like it at all and I and and, and I was completely sucked in and a fan for life just based on on that one book you know which is like is like my Lovecraft bible and Jim actually has a few editions from the same like late 80s it's like the late 80s i don't know if they're the pantheon editions but they're like uh with the kind of like weirdly unrelated like sort of ghostly horror covers oh but i think those are the del rey ones the del rey they're yeah, the yeah. del rey yeah, yeah the del rey ones yeah, those ones are awesome yeah and and the del rey collection drew yeah. me in completely and it also kind of like weirdly there was like an element of of the, the concept of the the dread the psychedelic dread yeah. also is at the same time I was listening to a lot of like skinny puppy yeah. and getting into like, cause I was in grade eight, getting into industrial music mm -hmm. and the extremity of love, like Lovecraft's descriptions of insanity really resonated with me too. Existential dread. Existential <laughs> cosmic dread. Yeah. It, yeah. It, cosmic it, it all seemed to come together. And I, and I remember <laughs> thinking like, wow, like I feel like there's this, 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 sort of synergy between what I'm listening to now, like this industrial music and Skinny Puppy and Absolutely. the horror films I'm watching from the yeah. 80s. And then this writer from like the 20s, like <laughs> in the 30s, like it bizarrely all kind of came together. You some, know? The, some scrawny dude from New England that just sat around in his library all day, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 so every point was finding that one book in my weird little uh, Greenlee's bookstore in my small town. And I bought it based on the cover, <laughs> never having heard of H.P. Lovecraft in my entire life, bought it purely based on the cover and took it home and had my mind blown for life. Yeah, turned out to be the best decision. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you can buy a book based on the cover. You indeed can. Yeah, those uh, 80s industrial groups were the first to really kind of dive into Lovecraft stuff because, you know, they incorporate into their music, like samples from those various Student Gordon films. Yep. And and uh, Dorian, your, your uh, experience of getting into Lovecraft, you know, being drawn in by the 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 book cover and then you, the way you're describing it, it was oozing off the pages. I can't help but feeling like if the movie uh, of uh, uh, the John Carpenter film, um, oh my God, the Madness film, um, in the Mouth of Madness, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. I could see Dorian walking down the street. Do you read Sutter Kane? That would totally be you, dude. I'm sorry. Oh, cool. cool, man. Yeah, yeah. I love John Carpenter, by the so way, as same. well. Same. Oh yeah, yeah. John and and honestly, like at, at the same time, it was kind of like a little bit unrelated, but like one of my favorite films that I saw at a young age was The Thing, 
which, which is ha- celebrating its 40th anniversary. By oh, the way. wow. Which is, <laughs> which is somewhat Lovecraftian. It is. In a lot of ways. Absolutely. You know, yes. Because, I don't know, the concept of insanity and body horror really was touched yep. on before it was, before those concepts were popularized, you know, like they were, well, they were touched on yeah. like, by, by, by H.P. Lovecraft, for sure. You know? Well, and the idea of like, you know, uh, aliens crashing in Antarctica and like the idea of like existential horror of like, we don't really know, know what's going on here. And, and the fact that, yeah, the body horror and yep. the idea that it incorporates itself into you and you yep. become the monster. I mean, th- these are very much Lovecraftian type, you know, tropes. They really are. Sure. And also like, I feel like possibly Lovecraft resonated with me also because growing up as a kid, I don't know about you, Jim, but like growing up as a kid in the 80s before sort of like the opening up of the Iron Curtain and stuff, there was always this constant feel, possibility, feeling of the possibility of total global annihilation because yes. of nuclear war. Oh, yes. yes. And, we, we lived with the horror of nuclear weapons. And I kind of felt like, I, I sort of like, I, don't, I almost weirdly took solace in the fact that like these monsters could supersede what we would envision as ultimate annihilation because yes. we're so like we're so meaningless in the in the pantheon of the great old ones that like their total kind of global annihilation that they could like like release upon humanity would be far beyond even like our own technological abilities to destroy ourselves well, the cold kind of, eyes from the void looking in as we destroy ourselves and not even feeling anything yeah <laughs> yes you know what i mean though that there's a connotation totally there. Lovecraftian. and i yes, feel like there i feel is. like that concept of total global annihilation yeah. in the 80s somehow lovecraft touched touched that feeling within me you know yeah yeah the 80s was about the war on something and just kind of like realizing that there are these elder gods and I don't know it's strangely almost comforting at the fact that even though we have all these things happening on earth there could be something actually totally much worse (laughs) (laughs) which was strangely comforting yeah from darker dimensions beyond our means and understanding. Like total global, <laughs> total global nuclear annihilation would be like an exfoliation session for an old god. Oh, Cthulhu would just sort of roll over and go, well, what was that? It's like a pedicure. <laughs> <laughs> like, what was that? Did something happen? <laughs> well, there, there's a couple of anthologies out there, like about like old ones in the apocalypse where humans bring about the apocalypse or, you know, or the elder old ones bring out the apocalypse through the humans launching off their nukes and stuff. And afterwards they're like, "Eh." (laughs) they make some good stories though. Mm -hmm. Next cycle. (laughs) So I think time for meat and potatoes. Y'all have talked a bit about your label cryo chamber. And one of the unique things about cryo chamber is the roster of that label is so I, I've never seen a label roster except for maybe if you go up to Olympia and go to like kill rock stars back in the 90s or something but where everyone's on the same page they help each other out they collaborate with each other they're all BFFs but cryo chamber is unique in that a couple of years ago they started putting out these uh HP Lovecraft collaborations and I don't remember which one it started with but it started with one of them like I don't know Cthulhu one disc 
but then it went to Azathoth two disc, and then Zoth Almog three. Basically, you're up to what the hundred disc, you know, Shug <laughs> or something like that. Norlathotep was four. That was, was the peak. It gets bigger <laughs> and bigger. But the neat thing is, is like everyone on the roster is a part of making these, and I, I, I. So a lot of questions asked about that because y'all are part of the process. So I guess the first question is, are you privy at all to how this even ambitious concept came about? Absolutely. Um, It was entirely Simon Heath's uh, initial concept. And uh, it is a truly collaborative project. Uh, Unlike anything that uh, I can think of, because the way it works is that all of the artists have studios, obviously, because we're all independent, self-directing musicians. And so basically the way it functions is that all of the artists create little bits of music. Um, We refer to them as stems. And then we have a shared folder uh, that we upload to. So this is something that is only possible in the internet age of Mm -hmm. file sharing and uh, collaborative working, much like Dropbox. And so everybody creates their bits and puts them in the folder. And then once everyone's done, we subsequently download each other's bits. And then we put them into our software and we do whatever it is that we do to create a piece of music with those bits. And, you know, subsequently add our own contributions or whatever. So it's truly a collaborative process. It's not a remixing. It's not a, uh, I'm covering one of your pieces of music or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. We're truly using each other's music to create a larger piece of music. So um, it's, it's a wonderful idea. It's, it's something unprecedented in my experience, certainly. And uh, it's really, really cool because it gives you a direct insight into the other artists approach you're listening to their music in its rawest form it's it hasn't been mixed it hasn't been contextualized it hasn't been mastered so you're hearing the raw output of your fellow artists and for me that created a new level of respect and understanding for everybody else and appreciation for what they do because you know I'll, I'll listen to like i'll download tracks from like because i have artists on the label that i really admire and so i'll download my tracks from my favorite artists and go and just kind of listen to it in my studio and go wow that's so cool <laughs> and, but the thing is what's neat about that is that i can add to it or i can work with it or i can change it or i can filter it or whatever because the idea is that it's like here's my thing go for it have fun <laughs> and uh it's it's i think really created this bond and community with the artists on the label because we have the ability to listen to each other unfiltered and so we get an honest sense of you know hey well you know when simon does something with hrm cursory or or whatever one one of the other artists on the label it's like, wow, hey, this is actually really neat. It's, I'm not just listening to the album track. I'm listening to like, this is something Simon just recorded. And so it's inspiring on that level. 
Um, plus also just due to the nature of the artists that are on the roster, we, we all have uh, an appreciation for the, obviously the darker, more ambient, introspective, cinematic elements mm -hmm. to music. Uh, it's inspiring because I'll listen to it and I'll go, wow, that's actually really bringing some ideas for me to create to. So I've always really made a point of trying to be involved in these. And uh, um, we've been working together since the Narlathotep uh, record was put out. The triple CD. Yeah, it was a triple? It was a triple. Yeah. It wasn't four, it was three. I mean, it was four. I don't know. It was a lot. As the releases <laughs> come, they get bigger and bigger. They get bigger and bigger. <laughs> These of albums, pretty soon it's going to be, here's a 100-disc box set of, uh, you know, some elder god. <laughs> it really will truly take eons to listen to. <laughs> In, in jewel-encrusted rosewood. <laughs> hey, that sounds cool. <laughs> I am the sucker for the, the limited special edition stuff. Why have the CD that comes in the jewel case when it could come in the, the wooden box with postcards, autographs, signed and numbered, also in a tote bag? Which I know one of those releases came in a tote bag. <laughs> it, did, it did. Yeah, there's a tote bag for sure. The, I love that stuff too. <laughs> the, most, the most extreme version, like I remember there's like a Wu-Tang album that came, the CD was like in the CD player in a car and you had to buy the car. <laughs> so, gotta ask, when you're working on these collabs, though, are there guidelines that you're given? Like, all right, this is the Cthulhu uh, album. It might be yes. one CD, it might be three CD, it might be 10. Uh, but here's the theme or whatnot. Like, are there specific guidelines that are given uh, to the kind oh, of yeah. there, God? Without there, question. There are, and and all of, um, I mean, since Nyarlathotep, like all of the releases have been double CDs mm -hmm. and and with a limited amount of artists. Because I mean, it, I think that like after Nyarlathotep being a triple CD, it was maybe possibly getting like into the zone of being a bit unruly. Yeah. So, so the the way the way it works now at the lab, at the label is um, when the uh, project is announced, Simon will ask which artists want to partake, and like the first twenty artists that hop on are the twenty that are kind of committed to the project, mm -hmm. keeping it within the lot like a double a double CD. So each each uh, artist will then contribute their stems to um, to be like remixed and reworked by other artists and contributed to and. And but 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 yeah, and in terms of like each deity that uh, is the inspiration for each release, there's also kind of generally speaking at the be very beginning of the project, sort of a, an outline of like themes that would be appropriate for that deity, and maybe like areas to explore tonally and yeah. them thematically. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Like for example, Dagon, uh, water and deep sea and you know stormy vibes and shorelines and so so we basically okay like cryo chamber as a label has a private group on facebook and whenever we coordinate one of these projects we all communicate with each other privately through this group mm -hmm. And Simon, you know, obviously being the dear leader of the label, <laughs> uh, he spearheads whatever the particular, uh, <laughs> whatever the particular vibe or, 
nature of the particular deity is. Mm -hmm. uh, and then from there, we, we all discuss it and we throw in our two bits and, you know, some of the artists are more, um, more proactive than others. But the thing is, though, we, we all communicate with one another and we say, OK, well, this is the general vibe of this one. And so uh, so for sure, there, there is absolutely uh, an oversight. There's definitely guidance in terms of, OK, this particular deity has a particular vibe. Mm -hmm. But with that said, uh, there's a freedom amongst the artists to express that, however that means to you. So, you know, if, if you hear uh dagon as like some sort of you know watery beast well that's great if you hear it as some kind of just sort of distant threat existential thing well that's great too um if you're hearing a big powerful drone or some sort of airy melody what, whatever that may be mm -hmm. however it is that you feel you're expressing that particular vibe if you will mm -hmm. um so really there's no like well, this is right and that's wrong. It's more along the lines of, well, here's the idea. And, uh, you know, let's see where it goes. You um, talked about being very much inspired by these uh, STEM opportunities um, for each album. So I'd love to hear when you're listening to these, are there certain things that you learn, uh, like skills or ways of putting music together that you hadn't thought about? I, I hate to say they're challenges, but more as a learning opportunity. And what have you learned from these? Oh, without any question. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, Absolutely. without yeah. any question. Uh, I've grown enormously as an artist and a producer in the time period where I've been lucky enough to be involved in this. Uh, and I mean, I can't speak for Dorian in this sense, but I know same. for me. Yeah. yeah. And uh, because I, I mean, when, we'll just backtrack a moment when we were initially uh getting involved with crowd chamber uh dorian reached out to simon and we were both a little bit sort of like feeling some trepidation <laughs> we're like well i don't know gee are we good enough for this label <laughs> is simon just gonna say you guys are idiots what are you doing give me this crap this stupid guitar stuff whatever pretty high bar <laughs> Very yeah, that label, yeah. Right? like we, we went sure. into it with a real sense of uh, respect and uh, and like these artists were people that we looked up to, if you will. So for me, when I first had the opportunity to do one of these projects, uh, I actually was really excited to download what these artists had created. Thank you. Um, and uh, yes, without any question, I learned. Uh, without any question, I gained insight. Without any question, I heard techniques that uh, the other artists were using uh, or ways of creating certain atmospheres or uh, textures or approaches to melody and production that gave me uh, inspiration and insight into ways of doing better. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, music is a journey. It's, it's a way of continually improving my ability to express what I want to do. And for me, it's like if I can listen to someone that I feel is further down the road that is more informed or just generally 
you know, cool and great, <laughs> then to me, that's just like, wow, what an opportunity. Thank you. Oh, it's so true. Yeah. You're never going to get better hanging around people that aren't as good as you. Yes. So when you're hanging out all of a sudden in a room full of people that are like, you know, extraordinary producers that are, you're going to feel motivated and pushed to do the best possible work you can do. And that's what cryo chamber is because like it's it's a it's a family of artists that are all extremely talented, very high level people that push each other to yeah. become the best possible versions of themselves as producers. You know. Yeah, they're all humble. They're all decent people. And they are that. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. There's totally. there's no rock star behavior. There there's just mutual respect. Yeah. And um, you're right. We are each other's BFFs. <laughs> I, uh, you know, when, when I really sort of became comfortable with expressing myself to the other artists in, in the, the group, I, I, I really, I said to them, it's like, you know what, this actually feels like home for the first time for me. Aww. You know, it's like, I feel like who I am is actually truly appreciated and accepted. And I say that coming from the standpoint of this weird kid that played D&D &D that was always kind of a weirdo outsider that listened to weird music and played in bands and just kind of was always like this, like, yeah, I don't really fit in, but, you know, I'm just kind of doing my thing. <laughs> so, you know, for me to find that community, because that's really what it is. It's a community uh, of like-minded creative people mm -hmm. that's uh you know buddhists refer to that as sangha and to me that's what it is it's it's a group of people that are on a similar path that are trying to achieve um the same result uh, becoming the best person they can be as dorian described which lovecraft collab would you say is your favorite and why oh my that's difficult because here's the reason why that's difficult uh, it's a journey, and each one offers a, a different set of challenges because different deities have different things. Yig is very different from Cthulhu, and Cthulhu is very different from Yogg-Sothoth, and, you know, they, they, they all have their own kind of reason to be and things that they are about. Um, My favorites, I definitely... I have a personal favorite. Yeah. Because I've listened to them all extensively in various sort of mental states. <laughs> um, enhanced. Some, sometimes enhanced, but also sometimes in the background, sometimes in the foreground at yeah. various levels of like, like, like um, uh, mental, mental uh, interpretation. But my personal favorite is uh, Nyarlathotep. Only because, not because it's like the, a three CD triple CD or four quadruple CD. I can't remember. I think it's triple. <laughs> I think it's triple. You're it's, right. I think it's triple. Yes. But um, the story always gets bigger the more you tell it. That, <laughs> and, and not because it's the first one that we were on that we participated in, but I personal my, my own personal favorite one to listen to is uh, Nyarlathotep because it has a weird kind of grandiosity. <laughs> There's a, like a, I don't know, it's a bit like, I don't know. It's a bit like an over. It's almost overconfident. It's the yellow god, right? Like he's the yellow one, like Nyarlathotep. He's oh no, no, 
Well, no, no, in Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, you know, the the the, the priests in yellow and stuff are the ones that you they pay homage to them and stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think so. And, and if I remember the cover correctly, it it exudes uh, an extreme amount of confidence. Um, yeah. So that actually makes sense. He's kind of one of the top guys up there too. So I well, can see yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I've, I've listened, I've, I've gone through all of the collaborations um, and for my own, for me personally, Nyarlathotep is the my, my favorite. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> you can also see it correctly. Like, too. Really it extraordinary can. bowed guitar from Dermot. <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny because Nerlathotep was the first one that, that we contributed to uh, as Northumbria, obviously. And um, at that point in time, I was extremely excited to do it for the reasons I was saying. It's like, wow, hey, you know, here's all these heavy hitter artists that yeah. I really admire. Serious and, people. Uh, yeah, serious people that have been doing this for a long time and just doing great stuff. And so I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to knock this one out of the park. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I created, um, well, artists, musicians, and producers refer to them as sample CDs, where you have like a whole collection of sounds and samples and ideas and loops and whatever, uh, bits and pieces of music that you can use for production. So I was like, okay, I'm going to create like sort of like a, a Northumbria sample CD here. <laughs> so I, I created, a, I, I would argue now, maybe perhaps too many bits and pieces. But, mm. but the thing is, though, a lot of it got used by the other artists. And yeah, and, and like Dorian said, like I, one of the things that I do uh, Northumbria is I, I, I use a bow on my guitar so it sort of sounds like a cello or a violin or if you hear anything in our music that sounds like that it's actually guitar um, and so because that was kind of our I don't know sound our, yeah our sound. calling card signature sound whatever however you want to describe it mm -hmm. um, I tried to really sort of emphasize that so I created a whole bunch of different melodies and vibes and changes and whatever and it got used. Like other artists ran with yeah, it. Yeah, the other artists kind of ran with it. And and when when we finally listened back, because remember, when, when we're doing this, we're not hearing what the other artists are doing. And we're all using each other's bits and pieces. So we don't really kind of know what's gonna happen until like Simon, you know, mixes the whole thing and what's gonna be used. We don't know what's gonna be used. Yeah. We kind of throw it into like yeah. this big pit of uh, and just sort of see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> And, and a lot of people used it. And, and so it was this, uh, it was kind of this beautiful validation for us. Well, it became a, a very strong, I think mm -hmm. pro probably the reason, one of the reasons why Nyarlathotep resonates with me so much is because your bone guitar became such a very strong melodic sort of recurring theme throughout the whole thing. Yeah, it know? became sort of a thread throughout the record. It became a thread thread. It, and it it's motif? It's mm -hmm. like a big one. Leap motif? A motif, yes. If you must <laughs> push us to specifics, it was a bold leap motif. <laughs> hey, I can go there, man. Yeah, I, I can. <laughs> I, I gotta say, that's gotta be surreal, though. Here's this new album came out. We're on it. We don't know how we're on it, but we're yeah. on it. And you listen to it like, son of a gun, that's us. I mean, it's not us, but it is us at certain spots. And that's got to be like a really crazy high. 
Honestly, that's exactly how I reacted. It was like, wow, I never would have put my thing into that kind of context, but gee, that's cool. And that's, <laughs> and, and, and that's the trust we have with Simon, yeah. right? Because yeah. we know exactly. whatever we whatever we contribute, he's going to end up creating something brilliant out of it, you know, in his overall, because we, we all contribute, but he's in charge of kind of like shaping the overall outcome. Yeah, you know. he's the producer. Yeah, <laughs> he is the director, cult, cult leader. Yes, exactly. <laughs> More like cult leader. What is next for Northumbria and yourselves? What do you guys got going on? Well, we're going to go and uh, we're playing at a uh, at a metal festival in Norway that takes place um, at the park that contains the burial mounds of ancient Viking kings. Oh. <laughs> I'm jelly. Oh, that's something. <laughs> it's Mid Midgard Spot. It's called Midgard Spot in uh, Norway. So we're going to go and uh, our friend um, Svartsen is curating the uh, the dark ambient uh, portion of the festival, which happens in like uh, the Gilden Hall, which is a, a uh, beautiful wooden recreation of a Viking hall mm -hmm. that um, that. Uh, the first, the at the inaugural Midgard's block, Wardruna, who are a quite well-known uh, Norwegian uh, neo-pagan band, played at. We're we're performing in the Gilden Hall at at Midgard's block at Midgard's block, which is going to be fun. So we're yeah we're excited to do that. We're also working on our um, our new album, mm -hmm. yeah, which is uh, kind of um, been a bit in fits and starts because we also. <laughs> uh, we also, uh, I guess we can, can we mention Yeah, we can go there. Okay. <laughs> so earlier this year, um, working on our new album was slightly, uh, not derailed, but sidetracked, sidetracked, <laughs> deprioritized by um, two uh, wonderful uh, producers um, in, in from California who had just completed their first feature film, contacted us about uh, doing a, an original <laughs> tour for their film. So we spent most of this year, the first part of this yep. this year, uh, scoring our first feature film. Yeah. Congratulations. That's oh yeah, awesome. yeah. It's, uh, it's 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 been a busy year for us. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. I mean, uh, I, I mean, primarily we recorded Dorian's plays, and that's because Dorian, uh, well, he made the investment <laughs> of <laughs> his garage into a recording studio uh where we are currently for this interview is we're hanging out in my the master bedroom of my two-bedroom condo that i've turned into a studio but dorian has a proper room and so anyway so whenever i go out there we just kind of work and do stuff yep. uh, but uh we have been working on this film and uh trying to go to dorian's place while we're working on this film kind of got a little bit sidelined so we've been kind of trading files back and forth actually much like the lovecraft uh collaborative process as well yeah. um working remotely kind of you know yeah but we've uh we've had a very busy year i've been driving out to dorian's place a lot and we've been doing a lot of recording and I think we're looking at a double album for our next well, record. Yeah, the next album, <laughs> the next album. So we have sort of two like two main things happening at the moment. One is the soundtrack for the film Feathered. Yeah. Uh, which we um, which we spent the early part of this year working on. Yeah. 
and the second is the our, our next full length uh, double full length for cryo chamber uh, which is kind of like a uh, it's sort of shaping up to be a um, I guess maybe cosmological rock it, it's our it's our it's dare a, I say space rock space rock it's, <laughs> a little, it's a little bit like a space a space rock album based on uh, inspired by uh, sort of the early the early birth of the universe and uh, like we're throwing titles around but like sort of the space between the big bang and the birth of the first stars um it's, it's so inspired by that early primordial state of the universe so yeah, it's, been, it's been a busy time for us <laughs> it's it's pre-lovecraftian yes it's pre-lovecraftian i, I, I hope it gets a double embossed gatefold vinyl release yeah so oh, is i would love that yeah. <laughs> It comes, it comes encapsulated in a vessel of semen of the great old ones. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you hand out uh, rubber gloves for that? Absolutely, and face shields. I, I, I sincerely <laughs> hope so. <laughs> All right, well, Dorian and Jim, it has been an awesome pleasure talking to both of y'all about your Lovecraftian influences and gateways and also your music as well. And I, I, I'll be honest as a, you know, fan and listener, especially of the cryo chamber label of, mm-hmm. of, I've always wanted to know a little bit behind the veil. So Lovecraft doesn't usually, you know, show what's behind the veil. So y'all <laughs> have, and I am grateful for it. So thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Well, thank you so much. It's been really, really fun. And uh, just from my own personal point of view, you've inspired me to blab about things that perhaps I wouldn't normally blab about in public. So, so thank you for that opportunity. <laughs> and also Lovecraft and the whole uh, cosmic horror thing has, has always been very close to my heart and an enormous source of inspiration. So it's, it's been really a, a great opportunity to talk about that. So thank you. And that concludes our transmissions for this episode. This episode's bumper was provided by director-composer Logan Thomas. Logan is the director and composer of the award-winning independent film There's No Such Thing as Vampires. He is the director-composer of The Yellow Wallpaper, Shot to the Heart, and The Phantoms, which is currently in post-production. We wish Logan much continued success. And listeners have voted, and we'll be discussing Cthulhu Mansion for our upcoming primary episode that will be released on Sunday, June 12th. In our June Transmissions episode, we'll be chatting with Robert Atone about The Triangle, which is book one of his Rise Trilogy series, and Laura Synth about The Clackety, currently available for pre-order. This episode will drop Thursday, June 30th. 
Please contact us if you would like to be a guest on Transmissions. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com. And of course, you can also email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. Cecily agrees. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and feel free to explore our archives. Consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books that we have either edited or contributed to with individual essay chapters. Or if you feel like donating a dollar or two, we have a coffee account. A link is provided in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening. <music>